you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We are coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is January 24, 2024. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. It is going to be another solo episode for me. I do have a guest, uh, an interesting guest for us to learn more about a technology that's becoming really popular. Uh, but it's just me for the news and key takeaways today. So let's start by talking about what's happening in the cloud native ecosystem. Uh, let's start with an open source tool from Red Hat that got accepted into CNCF as an incubating project. Uh, the, the project is called Kraken Chaos. Uh, and Kraken is spelled weird, but that's how it's pronounced. Uh, Kraken Chaos is an is a chaos engineering tool specific, specifically built for Kubernetes to improve its resilience and performance. Uh, there are uh, since it's a chaos engineering tool, right? There are certain test scenarios that you can run against your cluster to verify that your applications will perform as uh, you expect when they are running in production. So some of these test scenarios include things like. Uh, disrupting application pods, that's pretty simple. But then uh, advanced use cases like sending specific kill signals uh, to mimic failures, terminating nodes, stopping the nodes, stopping the kubelet running on a worker node, blocking ingress or egress traffic, uh, consuming or hogging up the CPU memory and IO resources on a specific node, filling up a persistent volume to a, a specific percentage that you specify, uh, introducing packet loss and bandwidth limitations and many more features. Uh, personally, I'm excited because some of these things do sound interesting. Uh, I want to test this out and I'm glad that like they uh, donated it or, or made it part of the CNCF uh, list of projects. Uh, so um, I guess looking forward to seeing a sticker of this project at the next KubeCon, right? Uh, that's what uh, these projects get <laughs> in addition to all the all, all the other things. Um, next up, uh, continuing the thread to talk about Red Hat, uh, Red Hat Developer Hub is officially GA or generally available. Uh, it was announced last year in, I think, May when uh, Red Hat Summit was uh, like at one of the Red Hat Summit keynotes. It's based on the open source backstage product, uh, project, but it adds like a self-service dashboard, standardized software templates, a role-based access control and ongoing support. Uh, one thing that popped out from the release notes is dynamic plugin capability, which makes it easier to install, update, and remove plugins from the developer hub without having to rebuild the backstage environment. So go check that out. If you have a Red Hat subscription or you're running an OpenShift cluster, this will just work on top. Next up, Trilio, a vendor in the Kubernetes data protection ecosystem, announced support for uh, protecting applications that are running on OpenShift, but those OpenShift clusters are can be running on IBM Power Systems as well. So not just your Intel-based uh, OpenShift clusters, even if you're running it on IBM Power, you can use Trilio's data protection tool to protect your containerized or stateful applications running on top. And then finally, we do have an acquisition uh, to share. Uh, Sneak, the Kubernetes security and developer security uh, company that Personally, it's really well funded. <laughs> uh, acquired a smaller startup called Helios uh, for an undisclosed amount. 
looking at Helios's funding history, it seemed like they only raised a $5 million seed round back in 2022 and was, there weren't any other funding rounds available. So I think this is just a great exit for, for anybody who invested in the seed round. Uh, Sneak definitely is uh, growing at a rapid pace and getting widely adopted. So this just adds to their uh, portfolio. Uh, Helios, right? What it does, uh, Helios helps developers troubleshoot and understand their microservices-based applications in production. Uh, so what Sneak will end up doing is, uh, according to their press release, they'll integrate features like the end-to-end application delivery service uh, that Helios has and its and Helios's open telemetry-based runtime data collection tools and both of these capabilities will be integrated into the sneak uh, app risk product so if you're already using that expect these capabilities in the near future but congratulations to everyone at helios and sneak uh this just means that there are different exit routes available for startups in the ecosystem right with 2024 we want to see either more mergers and acquisitions or more ipos rolling around we have a lot of startups in our Kubernetes ecosystem that are ready for for the public markets to open up and and uh, have some exit for for the early employees. With that, let me introduce the guest for a guest and topic for today. Uh, we are going to talk about V clusters, and it's a really cool technology that offers multi-tenant capabilities for your Kubernetes cluster. And to talk about that, we have the co-founder and CEO of Loft Labs, the the company or the startup behind V cluster technology, Lucas. Uh, who will join us and, and we can ask him more questions about how WeClusters actually work. So without fu- without further ado, let's bring Lucas on. This episode is brought to you by our friends from Elotl. Elotl Luna is an intelligent Kubernetes cluster autoscaler that provisions just-in-time, right-sized and cost-effective compute for your Kubernetes apps. The compute is scaled both up and down as your workloads demand change thereby reducing operational complexity and preventing wasted spend. Luna is ideally suited for dynamic and bursty workloads such as dev test workloads, machine learning jobs, stream processing workloads, as well as workloads that need special resources such as GPUs or ARM-based instances. Luna is generally available on Amazon EKS, Google Cloud GKE, Azure AKS and Oracle OKE. Learn more about Luna at elotl.co slash Luna and download their free trial at elotl.co slash Luna dash free dash trial. Hey Lucas, welcome to Kubernetes Bytes podcast. Can you please introduce yourself uh, for our audience and tell us more about what you do at Loft Labs? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Lucas. I'm the CEO and one of the founders uh, here at Loft. And, you know, our, I guess, claim to fame at this point is our open source project, vCluster. A lot of people are actually more familiar with the name vCluster than they are with the the company behind it. Uh, But yeah, Loft is the company behind it. Yeah, I think that was my first introduction to to Loft as well. Like I found out we about V clusters, and then I saw V V cluster by Loft Labs. And I think since you also have like a different website for V clusters, it feels <laughs> like its own own thing. <laughs> yeah, okay. we're definitely so, trying to give it some independence. You know, as an open yeah. source project, as a community around it, etc. Not everything needs to be commercial right from the start. So we felt like having that clear separation makes a ton of sense. Oh, I like that strategy. So uh, let's go, let's talk about V clusters, right? Like, can you talk about like, what are V clusters and how they are helping organizations architect for multi-tenancy? 
Yeah, vCluster is essentially a Kubernetes cluster that runs inside a single pod, right? It can also run in multiple pods if you have more complex setups. But in the easiest case, a vCluster is just a pod and it hosts an entire Kubernetes control plane inside of that pod. So instead of talking to your EKS API server, you can now talk to that pod. And there's another Kubernetes cluster inside of there. And the big benefit is you can essentially now create, you know, 100 Kubernetes clusters that all run on the same EKS cluster without having to spin up 100 EKS clusters, right? 100 EKS clusters is very expensive. It is. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of redundancies. You know, just think about like running 100 times Istio. That's very annoying, right? <laughs> um, so we're essentially telling you how about you run one ingress controller, one Istio, one search manager, and then you spin up 100 V clusters in these pods. And then you give people access to these TCV clusters instead of giving everyone their own EKS, AKS, GKE, or private cloud cluster, or wherever, wherever you are. Okay. And I think the way you were describing it, right, it felt like the whole VMs to container description that we had in the beginning, where instead of <laughs> installing guest OS on each virtual machine, why not, for, for an application that you want to run, why not just package your application as a code and run all of them in this, on the same VM? Uh, so you said you can run hundreds of these and I'm assuming these are CNCF conformant Kubernetes clusters. Like how big do the host clusters or, or the, the base cluster have to be to support these many Kubernetes clusters? Yeah, they can be pretty lightweight. I mean, a V cluster uh, in the easiest scenario, right? Like in, a, in our kind of like getting started setup, mm -hmm. right? You're using K3S as a super lightweight, you know, okay. single binary kind of compiled, um, you know, Kubernetes distro um, with a SQLite backing store for that gotcha. uh, for that V cluster, right? So it's as lightweight as it gets. It's really like, you, obviously you can have that SQLite even in the ephemeral container storage and you have a super ephemeral Kubernetes cluster, but also, you know, you can provision a uh, persistent volume and uh, have the SQLite in there, which is obviously what we recommend. And I think we have that enabled by default as well to retain the state beyond, you know, restarting the, the pod. Um, and that's just super lightweight. So uh, it really is like, uh, you know, I think we have like a, a 0 0.1, uh, CPU uh, as a you know recommendation oh. to get started with to 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 start the V cluster and I think like a hundred megabyte uh, you know of memory uh, so the footprint is super super low to get started with a V cluster and then obviously the more load you have on the V cluster the more applications are running in there you want to probably bump up these resources. just like with a regular Kubernetes cluster you want gotcha. to give more resources if the control plane you know if the API server needs to reply to a lot of requests etc. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fairly easy to uh, to get going uh, and have a lot of V clusters in a relatively small uh, underlying host cluster. Okay, okay, I, I I see the value, right? Like 0.1 CPU and 100 megs is not a lot of resources to get started <laughs> with. So, like, what does the process look like, right, to deploy these V clusters? I have an EKS cluster running right now. How can I get started with it, and 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 what actually gets deployed inside my EKS cluster to get this V cluster functionality? Yeah, if you have a um, if you have a EKS cluster already and you have a valid you know cube context on your machine, so you run kubectl commands, right? You have access to the namespace and kind of deploy things to that cluster. Um, you can essentially get started with our CLI, which is really just in, in a way a wrapper around Helm uh, for okay. vCluster. So vCluster is really just packaged as a Helm chart. And there's a, with the CLI is a little bit easier because you, it just looks at your cluster and then makes certain, configures certain Helm values, right? And helps you kind of upgrade the cluster easier. Okay. But you can just run vCluster create. 
And under the hood, what that's going to do, it's configure some of the Helm values. Of course, you can customize them to your liking. There's a lot of you know config options to tweak your vCluster and set it up yeah. however you like it, right? But when you just run vCluster create, we have some smart defaults in place and it deploys that Helm chart uh, to uh, one of your namespaces. And then, um, you know, that essentially in that Helm chart, the two core pieces that it has is a stateful set um, mm-hmm. that deploys that vCluster uh, pod with the persistent volume to, you know, host the SQLite database um, and then a service so that the vCluster is addressable. And then, uh, you know, what we typically do is uh, you can either expose the vCluster, you know, via ingress to the public, of course, but you can also just connect to it via port forwarding. Um, And that's what we do for like a lot of local clusters, et cetera, to just, you know, get you started. So when you run vCluster create, uh, we actually connect to the vCluster automatically Mm -hmm. and set it as your cube context. So let's say you're in an EKS context and then you run vCluster create, it'll drop you into the context of the vCluster. And then you can uh, essentially run vCluster disconnect um, to uh, disconnect from that vCluster inside context and go okay. back to your EKS context. But obviously, you can also use, you know, Docker desktops like Switcher to switch the context or a kubectl command to switch the context. Or I think K9S allows context switching as well. Right? Like whatever favorite tool you have to okay. switch your kube context uh, should work as well. So you said it deploys a stateful set and a persistent volume and a service object, right? So that's my Kubernetes cluster. And if I'm a developer, can I ask for a kube config file to directly connect to the V cluster as long as my administrator or whoever has deployed the V cluster has configured ingress properly and I can just access it as without knowing like it's not a full-fledged cluster? Yeah, yeah. We actually have, uh, we put a, uh, there's a config option you can set that uh, automatically puts a, secret inside uh that deploys a secret alongside uh that stateful set as well and uh-huh. that secret contains the cube config oh, and okay. you can also give us a parameter and say like uh you know set up that ingress uh with this domain and then put this in the cube config right and then it becomes even easier to access the v cluster okay yeah that makes sense so thinking about like okay you deployed your v cluster What's next? Like, how are the the cluster wide resources handled? I know we started the call by saying we don't want to deploy Istio a hundred times. <laughs> how 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 does Istio know that this is a virtual cluster and the, the service mesh functionality and the communication function port to port communication will still work? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an excellent question because uh, obviously you know you still want to use Istio, right? Yeah. Um, so do we need to now install it inside the V cluster? Well, then we didn't win a lot, right? Like yeah. I mean, we won that we don't have to pay for an extra EKS cluster and provision nodes for it. That's already a benefit, but mm-hmm. and things are a little bit more dynamic, I guess, because nodes can be shared and things like that. But a lot of the benefit comes from actually sharing what we call platform stack. And that's okay. things like a cert manager, ingress controller, right? Or like an Istio or all these like central components, logging, monitoring, compliance and security tools like an OPA, for example, right? Um, you want to centralize them and certain things you want to make available inside the V clusters. Mm-hmm. Other things you don't want to make available inside the V cluster. Let me give you an example. So okay. OPA, for example, you want to deny privileged pods. You don't need any kind of OPA policy resources inside the vCluster because the user shouldn't be touching them anyway. Um, an ingress controller is different. You want users to be able to create ingress resources, but you want the controller to live outside of the vCluster and centrally manage it. 
so that you only need one load balancer IP for that uh, one ingress controller instead of everybody deploying their own ingress controller. You know, what you should actually do in a vCluster is you don't allow people to create load balancer services okay. in the vCluster. And then you deploy one centrally um, and make it accessible. And the way all of this works is with the syncer. Okay. The syncer is really the glue between what happens inside the vCluster and what happens outside in the underlying cluster. So when you create a pod, for example, inside the vCluster, right, or you create a deployment, right, that yep. deployment has replica number one, and then, you know, one pod gets created, controller manager creates a pod. Uh, that basically just means in your etcd, or in this case, SQLite, right, um, you essentially just have one more entry in that data store. And then typically next, the scheduler would pick up that pod that's pending now and would schedule it to a node, right, to actually okay. be, be launched. Um, but in a vCluster, it's different. In a vCluster, we don't have a scheduler. Instead, we have a syncer. And that syncer has two kube contexts. It is connected to the API server of the uh, virtual cluster, but it's also connected to the API server of the underlying cluster. And what it does, it sees that part that needs scheduling, and then it copies the part down to the underlying cluster. And now that oh. underlying cluster is going to schedule the part. And that also means when we're creating that pod, it goes through that mission control loop in that underlying cluster. That means if we have OPA, as I said earlier, in the underlying cluster, these OPA policies get enforced across all your pods, despite them you know, being created in different virtual clusters. Okay. And then um, what we typically do, we have also a feature that is easily enabled with one flag. It's called isolated mode which by default sets up things like resource quotas and it sets up things like network policies to make sure that, for example, one pod from one vCluster can't talk to another pod from another vCluster because okay. technically they are run by the same cluster, right? So there's cluster internal DNS and like all of that stuff. And you want to obviously lock that down and isolate the vClusters in some extent. But then other things like OPA, you want to enforce it across all pods. And when you look at resources that should be shared like a, like an ingress controller. Yeah. Um, you can now enable syncing, not just for pods. That's a default thing that syncing for pods is enabled because that's how you can launch workloads. So we need yep. to enable that by default. But you can also say, I'm going to enable ingresses. And that means the user can now create ingresses inside the vCluster and they also get synced to the underlying cluster. And that means the underlying cluster can run one ingress controller and can reconcile all of these uh, ingress resources from the okay. different V clusters because they all end up in the same underlying cluster ultimately. Okay, and that makes sense. So, like deployments, stateful sets, or any of the compute resources gets uh, deployed on the host cluster. Are there any restrictions or limits to the different resource types that can be deployed inside a V cluster? Like, can I deploy my own operators and create custom resources? or it's not supported inside that virtual cluster? Yeah, you can. That's actually one of the biggest benefits, right? So if you uh, are working on operators today, it's really restrictive to share a cluster, right? Because mm -hmm. you're all listening on the same resources. You all have to have the same versions of these resources, yep. right? Like CRD management is really hard in Kubernetes. Um, but virtual cluster... The only thing at the bare minimum, what a virtual cluster and a real cluster need to agree on is what is a pod, right? So as long as we know that the pod spec is kind of the same, right? Like yeah. they're, they're, 
there's not that many like breaking changes in pods happening, right? Um, there may be a couple of fields being added. I remember, you know, I think about a year ago, uh, ephemeral containers were added to the pod spec, right? And then obviously, if your underlying cluster doesn't have that, but you create specify ephemeral container inside the V cluster, then the question is, okay, what happens, right? Yeah. Um, and that means you can't use ephemeral containers if your underlying cluster doesn't support it. But that's very, very few edge cases where actually functionality gets added. And the worst case is that piece is not possible, right? Okay. But you can still deploy other parts without ephemeral containers. Okay. Um, but all the other logic, right? Um, CRDs and then operators listening on these CRDs and performing operations on uh, on that API level, they live entirely encapsulated in your V cluster. There's the possibility of sharing things. Like, as I said earlier, with the Ingress example, mm -hmm. you can have with Istio, their CRDs, you can enable syncing for them, for example. But then if you have one V cluster where somebody wants to roll another version of Istio, right, they could deploy their own Istio if you allow okay. them to do that, right? Um, it's pretty, pretty flexible. I mean, we've seen, uh, we've seen V cluster used a lot for like operator development. I mean, our product, itself is like all controllers essentially right a lot of crds and uh we're obviously working in a, in a v cluster as well when we're developing the commercial product gotcha okay so can can developers or administrators whoever is deploying these v clusters right select different kubernetes versions for the virtual clusters while the base cluster is maybe running so base cluster might be running 125 or 126 right. but can i try start using 129 to develop my app or, or test some changes out yeah, you can. Oh. Um, so we are supporting four different uh, Kubernetes flavors. Uh, the default setting is K3S just because it's super lightweight, mm -hmm. really quick to get started. And for a lot of like dev, pre-production, CI, you know, preview environments, ephemeral environments, those kind of use cases, it's just perfect, right? Okay. Um, when you're thinking about, uh, you know, other distributions what we also support is vanilla kubernetes of course that's a little bit more heavyweight because you have the different components right not packaged into a single binary um then we also support k3 uh, k0s which is okay. Mirantis's kind of like you know lightweight flavor of kubernetes um which uh may have some i think they have some networking advantages over um over uh k3s, K3S for yeah. example right like that's a couple of improvements that i did on that in and then I think uh, the other distro that's really interesting is EKS. That's actually something that the AWS team has contributed. Oh. I was in one of their live stream sessions, right? Like I think it's uh, Containers on the Couch. I think yeah, yeah I love that. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good uh, good channel that they got going there on YouTube. And uh, I joined them there to talk about vCluster. And then we talked about the different distros and we had just added K0S. And then the AWS team added a pull request like a week later. And they were like, we should have EKS supported as well. And we're like, that's so cool, right? Especially because they jumped on it so quickly. That yeah. was really fun to see. But how would that work, right? Like EKS is a managed service. Like AWS is managing the control plane for my Kubernetes cluster. If it's running yeah. as a V cluster, is it still supported somehow by AWS? Like, Or they're just oh. making sure that you get a flavor of EKS? Yeah, they have this like open source kind of like, so they had this like really big EKS Anywhere initiative, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what okay, they're using. EKSD. Okay. Yeah, yeah, EKSD. I think that's the that's the open source flavor. That gotcha. They, that oh, okay. that makes sense. That's awesome. Uh, good to see in more adoption, right? Like you should jump on like streams for AKS and GKE next. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I need, to, I need to check out their open source offerings if that, that would be possible. Maybe maybe a good way to do that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. I think we've been 
you know, exploring the route of like OpenShift and those kind of areas as well. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many distros, right? I mean, we already got K3S, so like part of like the Rancher ecosystem, yeah. I guess, is involved uh, anyway. But uh, yeah, we, we'd love a world of having, uh, you know, more optionality with regards to what B cluster you want to run. Gotcha. Okay. And then I know we were talking about Sinker uh, a couple of minutes back. Can can a developer who's accessing a V cluster control what resources get synced down to the host cluster or that's an admin responsibility? Yeah, that's uh, for very good reasons, the admin responsibility, because <laughs> <laughs> we want the admin to be able to say, uh, you okay. know, what, what what is allowed inside uh, or pretty much everything we always advocate for. Some some people start handing out these, they put up, uh, you know, they, they don't make you cluster admin when they hand out the V cluster yeah. and they put additional RBAC and cluster wide roles. And we typically tell folks, just don't do that. Let people do inside the V cluster, whatever, you, whatever they want to do. But make sure the sync is configured so that what you don't want to actually be running in the underlying cluster doesn't make it through, right? Okay. Um, that's usually the approach we're taking. So configuring that sync is really what we're seeing as one of the ways to lock down uh, a V cluster. And by default, it's pretty locked down what we actually allow. Um, but then you can open it up to like additional CRDs or additional mm -hmm. resources that you you want to add. Okay. And you brought up a good point, right? If I'm deploying cluster level resources, since this is my own virtual cluster, can I create cluster role bindings and cluster roles and those kinds of things? And the syncer will basically stop it from getting configured on the host cluster? Exactly. Yeah. Like when you think about a cluster role or um, any kind of RBAC, right, uh, that really just needs to live inside the V cluster because that's something that your API server handles, yep. right? Um, so you have a separate API server. It doesn't need to reach the underlying API server. Um, of course, you could argue, like, what if a pod has a service account mounted and does requests? But yeah, we wire up the pod to also talk to the vCluster's API yeah. server, right? So those restrictions would be in place for that pod as well, despite it actually running in the underlying cluster. Um, and then there, there's certain things that we do want to enable uh, for folks that are not so tricky. Uh, that, that are more tricky, actually. So when you think about network policies, right? Yep. And let's say you want to allow somebody to do network policies. As we learned earlier, like networking is something that happens in the underlying cluster, right? That's why we can have an ingress controller and uh, our pods on an underlying cluster, right? So that IPs are in the underlying cluster, et cetera. Um, so if we want to allow our you know tenants inside the V cluster to be able to experiment with network policies, we need to enable syncing for network policies. Okay. But we need to make sure that these policies now only affect the V cluster. So what we do is we actually have a standard syncer for this. Like for certain use cases, we develop these syncer mechanisms. So it's super easy to configure and you, you can't go wrong with them. But there's also ways to define your own custom logic okay. and even write code to extend the syncer yourself. Um, but for this case, network policies, we saw that as a very common case. It's a standard resource in Kubernetes. So we put some effort in getting it right. And what we're essentially doing, you know, one thing that's important to understand, we typically try to not create namespace in the underlying cluster. Okay. So when you have 100 namespaces inside the V cluster, all of the pods that you're launching get synced to a single namespace in the underlying cluster. Ooh. Okay. So we have to rewrite the names, for example, right? We have to rewrite a lot of things in that process. 
And with network policies, when you set a network policy on namespace A to not be able to talk to namespace B, what we do is we rewrite that to label selectors. And what we do on these pods is we, instead of putting them in different namespaces, we put them all in the same namespace and then we label them. And we put okay. the na namespace in the label, right? And that's how we make essentially uh, network policies work inside the V cluster, um, despite not allowing you to actually restrict any traffic on another namespace in the underlying cluster. It's a pretty interesting uh, way to do things. I know that's that's a super smart approach, right? Like I, inside your V cluster, I can have 10 namespaces. They get translated and lay, use labels. Okay. And who's configuring these things, right? Is it by default something that V cluster provides out of the box or is it something that needs to be configured? Yeah, so we have a lot of config options. By default, everything just works out of the box, right? Okay. You want network policies to be synced, you enable that. Not, there's nothing else you need to do because okay. we already wrote logic for that. Okay. But then Perfect. if you want to tweak logic, you can do that, right? Okay. Um, so it's really important that we're super transparent about what happens in these synchros. And that's also why VCLUS is open source, right? Yeah. Like you can see what the synchro does and what really the effect of things is. And um, we have this plugin interface that allows you with like hooks, et cetera, to kind of manipulate the process. If you're saying, okay, like I want the network policy rewritten, but I also want certain things to be stripped off. Like, you know, we see that a lot for, for, for nodes, for example. One okay. of the questions I always get is like, what if I, ha what happens when I run kubectl and I get nodes? Do I see the nodes, all the nodes <laughs> on the underlying cloud? What do I see, right? Yeah. Like, uh, cause the VCLUS doesn't have a scheduler, so it doesn't even need nodes. It doesn't, right? That's the that's the point, right? It doesn't need static node assignment. But for some applications that you want to test, you need nodes. They expect to see a node, right? Yeah. So your admins can configure to sync nodes into the V cluster. Okay. And then you can tweak how they should be synced. So you can, for example, enable show all the nodes from the underlying cluster. You can also say show no nodes, right? Yeah. But you can also say show only the nodes that a part from the vCluster is currently running on. Okay. Because let's assume your OPA or, you know, whatever automatically restricts everything from one namespace, you know, puts like taints, et cetera, in place to make sure, uh, or node affinity, right, or node selectors, so that you end up on a specific node pool, right? Mm -hmm. Like these five vClusters always end on that node pool. And then we would dynamically show you nodes based on where your pods are located. Okay. So you would only see those nodes. Um, and then you can also enable obfuscation. And that way we rename the nodes, we change the spec, we show you different CPU and memory than the reality looks like, right? And we do these things. There's a lot of like defaults that we, you can just toggle on and off like that yeah. obfuscation, right? You can say true and we just obfuscate stuff. But if you want to put your own obfuscation logic in place, that's where the plugins and the hooks come in place okay. if you want to do something custom. So if you are showing or syncing some of the nodes inside the virtual cluster, can can a developer then taint or untaint some nodes or that's like it's only read only, not like you can modify yeah, those. So, so typically we only allow read only. Okay, that's, perfect. that's what we yeah. set up. But you can also make the okay. ISO, you know, bidirectional works too, right? Like you just need to enable that in the syncer, right? Okay. Um but I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. <laughs>
ಇನ್ಫ್ರಾಸ್ಟ್ರಕ್ಚರ್ಸ್ಟ್ರಕ್ಚರ್ಸ್ಟ್ರಕ್ಚರ್ಸ್ಟ್ರಕ್ಚರ
can they still monitor all the container images across those 100 v clusters if they are connecting it to their node the, the host cluster yeah they can so when you're thinking about any kind of tool that uh you know scrapes things from a pod whether it's uh the image to you know statically scan it or if you uh look at uh, extracting the logs with something like a data dog right um or kind of a monitoring tool to yeah. check the metrics right what we typically recommend doing, obviously, you could, you know, set a lot of these tools up in each cluster. But mm -hmm. again, typically not what you want to do. Yeah, what yeah. you want to do instead is run them in the underlying cluster. So you have like one data dog running or one image scanner running, right? And then the only difference for you as an admin or for anyone who has access to this, this tool to actually get the, you know, data and the analytics and be able to query uh, what the what data is being ingested. The only difference is instead of looking on a per cluster, like you set up your views per cluster, yeah. you now set up your views per namespace. And you say one V cluster is one namespace and it becomes really easy. And uh, one thing that we do is we rename, as I said earlier, we name them mm -hmm. pods and you may want to know also what is the namespace inside the V cluster and what it was the yeah. name of the V cluster, right? Where is this pod coming from? And we have all that information in labels and annotations okay, on the perfect. pods. So you can just set up your views to be able to filter by labels and annotations rather than by clusters and namespaces, right? Um, and that way you get the, the pretty much the exact same visibility. Okay. No, uh, I think that that's that makes sense. Like I can visualize it right now. Uh, so like security is one big thing. Another thing, again, this is Kubernetes bytes, right? We started as a storage <laughs> podcast. What about storage resources? Like if I'm deploying on EKS and I have the EBS CSI add-on configured on the host cluster, how mm -hmm. does storage provisioning work? And uh, how, how, like who owns those resources? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. So typically what you would do is uh, in a regular Kubernetes cluster, just as in a V cluster, you would create a persistent volume claim, right? Yeah. Um, and that persistent volume claim now needs to be fulfilled and it specifies like a storage class, right? Um, obviously, if you want your V cluster to be able to use that storage class, you've got to make it available to the V cluster. Similar okay. to if you want your Istio resources, like if you want the Istio CRDs to be used inside the V cluster, well, they got to exist in the V cluster, right? Um, but we also have like mechanisms to initialize a V cluster with batteries loaded resources, right? So okay. when it fires up, these CRDs are present, that storage class is available, right? Um, it's really interesting because you could have 10 storage classes in the underlying cluster, and you could say, this V cluster can use storage class A and B, but these V clusters can use C and D only, right? Okay. Um, it's kind of nice to also be able to restrict people that way in terms of they don't even see the others, right? Yep. Um, you could obviously do similar things like with OPA, but then people would potentially see these storage classes, but can't use them and find out later, right? It's actually much nicer to say, hey, you can only see what you can use, right? Um, and that way, uh, when you create that persistent volume claim uh, and have it like attached to your to mm -hmm. your pod, the pod gets synced and you would also enable syncing for the persistent volume claim. Okay. And then the underlying cluster has the storage controller that then says like, okay, I see a persistent volume claim. I got to create a PV, right, um, to actually provision the persistent volume. And then uh, that one gets mounted to uh, to that pod that I have, right? Um, yeah, because it's not really a virtual pod. It is a pod running on the host cluster. It is so a real mount pod. The, okay. Exactly. So all gotcha. the mounting mechanism, that's why we're like so compliant, right? Because 
the, the having syncing as that mechanism just makes things so much easier. You know, like initially we were piloting things and we were trying around what, what's possible. And, you know, you've probably played around with things like Docker and Docker and that kind of yep. stuff. And that just gets so difficult and ugly, right? Because like, <laughs> you know, you have the performance hit, then you have scalability limits and a lot of things are not supported, right? So many restrictions, right? And then with the syncer, well, it would be like, you know, just imagine you want to share Kubernetes cluster and you want to have a hundred tenants to share mm -hmm. it, right? Um, the difficulty today really is you can't, you know, ha you, you typically confine people to a namespace and you got to lock them down really hard in terms of permissions. But then you also, they also want to use a lot of objects. Mm -hmm. So the complexity is really high, right? In a VCLUS, that's really easy. You got to lock down a very few basic resources, pod, persistent volume claim, yeah. right? Like it's not maybe network policy, you know, like basic, basic resources, yeah. right? <laughs> but you don't have to worry about like um, when they run Argo CD inside or they test the machine learning framework or a MySQL mm -hmm. kind of uh, controller that provisions databases. They can do that. It doesn't matter to you, right? And they can create namespaces. They can set RBAC. They can add an admission okay. controller in their V cluster. You know, like they can do what they can add in controller, right? Like all of these things um, are possible now. So you're really elevating their privileges, but at the same time you're reducing the complexity to lock down that environment, right? That's okay. the beauty of the syncing mechanism. And then you brought up Argo CD, right? And that's one of the questions I had. Like, if I'm building, I'm following GitOps frameworks or patterns and, and automating my deployments, how does vCluster integrate with tools like Argo or Flux? Do, do you have uh, runners or something running on your vCluster that always are looking for information? Or how, how does it work for CD pipelines? Yeah. Uh, so I think when, you, when you're talking about a vCluster, the vCluster itself, as I said, is a Helm chart and is configured with, with a values YAML, right? Yeah. So the vCluster itself can be managed with RGCD, right? Um, and then obviously you can have the vCluster as a regular cluster as a deployment target in RGCD. So that okay. when you have your application sets or whatever you're creating in RGCD, right? Um, your applications are going to target that V cluster now instead of targeting the real cluster. Okay. And that's just going to work, right? Yeah. Um, like everything that Argo does is is going to work, whether uh, it sees it as a remote cluster or Argo itself runs inside of the V cluster. We've seen pretty much everything at this point. Um, I think CodeFresh, actually, their uh, managed Argo offering, um, they're using V cluster. They're, they're very vocal about this. Uh, KubeCon, I think in KubeCon Europe and in Amsterdam, uh, they gave a talk about how they use us in production okay. uh, for their managed offering. Um, it's really fascinating to hear these kind of stories. Uh, they actually ran without us. Like we didn't even know uh, <laughs> that they were using it in production. Um, I Those usually are the best recommend... customer testimonials, right? Like they don't, you don't even, you didn't even <laughs> ask for it. <laughs> exactly. And then we saw the, 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 the talk on the, on the schedule and obviously yeah. showed up for some of my engineers didn't get in because it was really packed, right? <laughs> and they couldn't yeah. let everybody in the room, but, um, it was really fascinating to hear that. Typically, when people want to use vCluster production, though, I do have to say as a disclaimer, I recommend reach out to us first because <laughs> we, we can probably share some advice so you don't some have to run into issues yeah. as you scale up. Right? Um, no, but I, it also I, touches on uh, you know what we're doing on our commercial product, right? Because, uh, for example, our commercial product has an Argo integration. Okay. And what it does, it provides you CRDs to manage vClusters 
It also has a Terraform integration, so you can spin up the ecosystem via Terraform, for example. Um, we are working right now on a cluster API integration. So it can you can spin up you know V clusters with cluster API through the commercial yeah. product, and then what the commercial product does with Argo, you can uh, with just one true false kind of statement in the in the definition of the V cluster, you can say auto connected to an Argo instance. Okay, and that means if a developer launches a V cluster, it automatically shows up in Argo, and we even sync the permissions. So you can say, because like our system is hooked up to your SSO and an Argo should ideally be hooked up to your SSO. Yep. Um, or Argo can even be hooked up to us and then we proxy the permissions to your SSO. Okay. Um, so we kind of become an authentication proxy and OIDC provider for, um, for Argo. But in any case, we know what the users are and they're the same in Argo and FOSS. And they're the, they're the same groups, et cetera. And then you can essentially give permissions with our product and they reflect in Argo, uh, which is really nice. So you spin up a V cluster and it's automatically available to your teammates, right? Um, that's essentially what, uh, you know, pieces of what we're doing in the commercial offering. Okay, gotcha. And uh, like talking about all of these things, right? All the different con uh, aspects. I have two more questions, I think. <laughs> One is uh, like, definitely like we can we can talk about that later, like what's next for V cluster, but then with with the whole platform engineering mindset and inside organizations right do you see people building their idps using v cluster or spinning up v clusters like how do how, how does integration work when it comes to platform engineering yeah 100 percent. i think we're you know with our commercial offering we're super enterprisey right um so we work with some of the largest companies in the world and mm -hmm. they really see they, they really have the the struggle of you know they may already have 200 or 500. The biggest one we've spoke to so far has over 3,000 Kubernetes clusters. Wow. Already. Okay. The, the scale in the enterprise is insane. And I think the reason why they have that scale is there was no good way to share a cluster before yep. vCluster. So what they did is what the cloud providers were advocating for, just spin up another EKS cluster. We I made know. it super easy. We're reducing the time, right? And that's that's all great advancements, right? But it's very like a lot of these clusters run idle all the time, right? Yeah. Because the resources are not shared, right? Like there's there's an idle Istio running 500 times, <laughs> right? Like on a Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. For all these dev clusters that they spun up. And that's a big problem. And it's also really hard to tell is this cluster still used or not, right? Gotcha. Like, how do you know, right? Like you can I look know. at API traffic, et cetera, but like the Istio is always going to do something, right? So it's like, it's really tricky. Us to say like what's inside the vCluster is application specific, what's outside is the general platform, and then sharing that general platform for for all your tenants is just so much more efficient. Gotcha. And I think with that model, we really allow platform engineers to build that self-service Kubernetes experience that they want to set up. You know, the scariest thing I've heard so far is, you know, not just the numbers of virtual clusters these guys have today, but where they're heading. Yeah. Because they see, when you ask them, how many clusters have you spun up last year? You find out, oh, the number of clusters has doubled. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, so it went from 200 to 400. And then you ask them what's going to happen next year. And they're like, we don't yep. know, but probably a similar trajectory. <laughs> and then we ask them, okay, what if you had no restrictions? Would you give, uh, you know, a Kubernetes, would you spin up a Kubernetes yep. cluster for every developer? And the answer would probably be yes. Okay, and then think about a big organization of ten thousand developers. Well, that's a lot of clusters to spin up, right? 
And you can even take it further. Sometimes we ask, would you spin up a separate cluster for CI run to get a clean cluster? There are people who do that, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of clusters that you have to spin up, right? Yep. V cluster, that's just much more efficient. So like we're really enabling, I think, the broad adoption of Kubernetes for yep. all of these use cases um, while reducing the cost and standardizing the way on how to spin up, how to dispose, and how to manage the lifecycle of these V clusters. Gotcha. And that's ultimately what platform engineers do, right? On the one side, they standardize things like an Istio and like, access to storage and like all of these underlying things, right? But at the same time, they want to enable self-service and autonomy and velocity. Yep. What better way to do that by saying, hey, you can be cluster admin, right? Um, that's essentially what we work on with a lot of these companies. Gotcha. Okay. So now let's talk about like what's next for the open source V cluster project. Right? Like looks like you have most of the areas covered. So like what's coming down the pipe? <laughs> Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of stuff still in R&D. So I, I say we, we're still super early. It sounds like, we, you know, I mean, we definitely put in a lot of work in the past. Yep. Like, you know, it's been almost three years at this point, three or four more months. And then we have a three-year anniversary for nice. uh, for V cluster. But, um, you know, I think there there's still a lot of areas that we find super interesting in R&D. One of them is, for example, to snapshot an entire V cluster and move it to a different cluster. Oh, wow. Or even okay. a different cloud, yeah. right? Um, that's a super cool idea. Obviously, there's uh, there's some really tricky challenges. Like, how do you make, um, for example, how, how do you snapshot the persistent data alongside with the application data, right? How do you kind of find the right time to take that snapshot to not be disrupted or have anything mm-hmm. corrupted, right? Um, there's challenges in that direction, but... Uh, that's a really, really exciting thing because then you can see a world where, you know, when you install, when you like the default way to install an application these days is a Helm chart. Yep. Um, but a Helm chart is like, that's a lot of images and a lot of uh, containers and a Helm chart is relatively complex. Um, and then you have persistent data and a lot of like infrastructure stuff below it. But if I now, you can't capture a state with Helm. If I have a problem, like let's say I install GitLab on my Docker desktop Kubernetes cluster, mm-hmm. and then I run into issues with that GitLab instance, can I send that to my buddy? No, I can't, right? Like yeah. they can install, you know, yeah, via Helm You have to reproduce well, the whole issue. and, and yeah. But what if I could just snapshot and send it to my buddy? Right? I know. <laughs> and that's really cool. Um, so packing up a V cluster and unpacking it somewhere else allows a lot of these debugging use cases, but also cloud migrations. Let's just say you have GitLab running in this one cluster and then you're saying, ah, maybe we got to reset that up and like, maybe we're going to move to EKS instead of COPS or whatever you used to spin up the cluster initially. Right. And then, well, that's a big migration project suddenly, right? What if you could just snapshot that V cluster with GitLab in it and move it to somewhere else, right? That's a really, really cool thing. Yeah, these are on. some interesting use cases for sure. Man, I'm looking forward to, like, I don't know, I'm going to follow vCluster channel more to see what's <laughs> going on. <laughs> okay, so, like, one more, one question that we have added in season four, this is our fourth year doing it, right? Like, how are you thinking about AI inside Loft Labs with vClusters? Like, in general, like, are you... And this answer can vary anywhere from GitHub Copilot for developers to you're actually like adding uh, AI capabilities inside the product. Yeah, I think we're uh, not too close to AI on the application level. 
Um, but we see ourselves kind of as an enabler for that AI wave. You know, when mm -hmm. you think about a query, for example, using us to bring more Kubernetes and more GPUs to these AI engineers, um, I'm very proud that we, you know, contribute to that, uh, you know, success that Quovi was having there. But also in a lot of other cases, when you think about, you know, the need for Kubernetes in an organization, well, if you are running, obviously you can always run like a local kind cluster, Docker desktop, Rancher desktop, any of these yep. solutions, right? But it's probably really hard for you to run like a large language model or train any kind of data on your local machine. So there's suddenly a really big need to be able to get access to a large-scale distributed, you know, system like Kubernetes, Kubernetes in the yeah. cloud, right? Um, but then you have things like EKS, et cetera, and then you're running into the problem again, like how can I hand out that to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where Vcluster comes in. It's like okay. Vcluster can be that enabler either within your organization, but also for folks like a core weave that have like a managed service for others to hand out okay. these resources to folks. Uh, so we're a little bit below on the infra layer. Uh, on the whole AI story, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's something really exciting for us. And you know, apart from that, obviously, we're we're trying out a lot of AI tools ourselves for all kinds of you know meeting summaries and like uh -huh. you know, <laughs> uh, knowledge bases and like you name oh, yeah. it. Right, for there's sure. so many advances coming out. I think one of the biggest things I've seen so far is automatic summarization of issues. Because mm -hmm. people tend to send us like really big messages of like, hey, I'm trying to do this in the recluster, et cetera. And then we got to figure out, you know, you know, who do we sign this best to, right? Yeah. But like usually it, it takes a while. and Make the triage process a bit simpler. Yeah, exactly. Now we yeah. can triage based off a summary first and then have somebody look in in a second step, right? Um, those kind of things are just That's how awesome. we leverage, uh, you know, like ChatGPT and other things like internally. Okay, one last question. Where can find people more information about vClusters, getting started, any tutorials that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, vcluster.com is the website, pretty straightforward. Uh, you'll obviously find the link to the Git repository from there. You'll also find our uh, vcluster Pro offering from there. Obviously, it's linked on that uh, on that side. And then, if you want to join us, uh, you know we have a very active, uh, like in the in the, you know conversation going on in in our Slack community. Um, so you can go to slack.loft.sh. Uh, it's also it should also be linked from pretty much any website and the Git repository. Gotcha. Uh, but that's a really good address to, you know, uh, if you if you run into uh, any kind of issues, if you're thinking about using vehicles for a specific use case and you want to see who else has done it and what they would recommend, yeah. right? Um, or obviously, if you, you know, want to contribute, but you don't know what what is the right starting point, well, just join us on Slack, open up the conversation. It's really vibrant there. We have like, I think, over 2,500 people oh, wow. in the Slack community already and, uh yeah, there's, uh, it's so exciting to see. I think like right now there's like five or six members joining every day. So it's just growing so quickly. It's it's really, really exciting. So definitely check out uh, our Slack if you're interested in because No, and no, and we'll we'll include that, the, all of these links that you just shared in our show notes as well. So hopefully people can find those easily. Uh, but I want to take this time and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lucas. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I learned a lot of new things. I'm sure our, our listeners did too. Uh, and yeah, with that, like, I'm looking forward to having you on maybe in a future episode when you have more features and more that maybe that snapshot functionality is working. So thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to, happy to join again as we, as we go further along in the vCluster journey. It's so great to be invited to Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you so much.
Okay, that was a great conversation. Hopefully, you guys learned something new. Uh, I I'm sure I did. Uh, let me let me just do my few key takeaways, and we can wrap this episode up quickly. Uh, first of all, V clusters a great open source project that you can start using today on any supported or any Kubernetes distribution. The thing that I really like was the really small footprint, like to get started or to deploy a V cluster. Uh, the the whole orchestration capabilities that V cluster brings to get started, you just need like. 0.1 CPU and 100 megs of RAM. That's nothing when you compare it to some of the application resources that are being consumed by pods that don't really need those resources, right? So great way to get started. Test this out in your own environment. Uh, I really like that it supports things like OPA, network policies, ingress, security scanning tools, and storage primitives as well. So you don't have to change or adopt new tools just to use the vCluster functionality. You can just manipulate the syncer functionality to see what gets translated or transmitted from the host cluster to the virtual cluster and, and back uh, the other way around as well. Uh, vClusters, uh, but another important thing to note is like if developers inside their own vclusters wanted to test resources like operators and custom resources they have the ability to do that without creating conflicts on the base cluster uh thing that also popped up was different version support for the base cluster and the virtual cluster so as we discussed in the episode right or in the interview uh, you can have a 126, 1.26 Kubernetes base cluster, but you can start testing out the 1.29 version of Kubernetes as part of your V cluster. And then uh, I really liked how Lucas was able to bring in customer examples like Coreweave and uh, Codefresh. Uh, uh, both of those seemed interesting. I have, uh, I'll also link those blog articles and those sessions in our show notes as well so feel free to like or make sure you you go and check those or read those out or read those for yourselves uh, but i think that brings me to the end of key takeaways for today hopefully this was a, a good episode for you uh, thank you for spending the time with us uh, make sure to give us a five star rating on anywhere where you listen to podcast if you haven't already checked out our youtube channel you can see interviews uh, on video as well so even if you prefer the audio format which I know 90% of you guys do, uh, but feel free to just still go and hit subscribe or like our YouTube channel so we can we can find new listeners. Uh, with that, this is Bhavan, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. 